Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of KCRW Public Radio Program, To The Point. He also hosted Which Way LA, KCRW's signature daily local news program from 1992 until 2016. Olney and his programs have been honored with more than 40 national, regional, and local awards for broadcast excellence. He has received Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and golden mics for investigative reporting. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Uh, the question tonight, I'm going to get right into it uh, for reasons I'll explain in a moment. Can U.S. democracy survive Russian information warfare? And the reason I want to get right into it is that Sokolo has scored a kind of coup tonight, it seems to me, by getting people with such authority on three different aspects of that uh, question. And I want to give them as much time as, possibly, uh, as I possibly can. The first is Julia Davis who is sitting next to me. She's a film producer, founder of the Russian Media Monitor. She analyzes Russian state media in the broader context of the Kremlin's propaganda, and she's also a featured expert with the Atlantic Council's disinformation portal. That's a very important word uh, as we discuss this issue of Russian information warfare so close to the upcoming elections. Also with us, Caroline Orr. Caroline Orr. She is a behavioral scientist and media researcher at Virginia Commonwealth University. She studies group behavior and digital environments using open source information and data analytics to examine how Russian information warfare targets the United States. And she is very well known for the Twitter handle at RVA Wonk. We also have Asha Rangappa, senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a legal and national security analyst for CNN. She previously served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Give them all a hand as we begin. All right. All right. So I want to start uh, with Julia Davis. I'm going to ask all of them a question at the outset. They're going to give us a rather brief answer, I hope, in order to then sort of illustrate where they're coming from. And then we'll open up the conversation, and hopefully it will be free-flowing and uh, not necessarily depend on questions from me. So Julia, as we look forward to the uh, upcoming election, what are the Russians saying about it, and what do they want to accomplish? The Russians are, are saying that if the Democrats take control of the House, they will try to impeach Trump. But the Russians are not um, all too worried about it because in their perspective, they win whether or not Trump is impeached. And in fact, uh, they say that if Trump is impeached, that would lead to chaos and civil unrest and uh, possibly armed civil unrest which uh, also makes them happy because ultimately that is their goal. It's not the preservation of uh, Trump's presidency, but the destruction of American society as a whole is what they're after. So the more chaos here, uh, the more it benefits uh, Putin's agenda. So, Carolyn Orr, let me turn to you. How do you think the Russians will try to get what they want? Um, we can already see... Uh, a repeat a little bit of, of 2016, but with, with new methods, with new tactics. Um, a lot of it is, is going after our own vulnerabilities, going after things that are going on already in our society. So um, a recent example is the uh, NFL kneeling. Um, the controversy that Trump likes to stir up is also something that Russia likes to tap into a little bit. Um, it taps into a... Um, you know, a pre-existing um, societal problem of racism, and um, that's one of the main one of the main ways that Russia seeks to destroy our democracies, to go after weaknesses that exist already, and and drive them deeper, and and turn Americans against each other, and um, sometimes distract us, sometimes make us fight, sometimes make us hopeless, um, but. It's really, you know, it's going after things that exist, not, not making up new things usually, but going after things that exist and just driving them deeper and um, using them against us. Asha Rangapa, do we have the intelligence capacity and the law uh, to do something about this? 
Well, we have one big law that stands in the way of the government being able to do anything, and that's the First Amendment. Um, one of the things that Russia can take advantage of in the United States, and they've been doing this since the Cold War, is our open society and the fact that we have a free press. And so they are able to use the fact that we allow anyone to put their ideas out there to put their own ideas out there. Um, you know, the difference between now and the Cold War is that now there are platforms that exponentially increase the reach of the ideas that they put out there, and they do it much faster. And so the destructive potential of the information that they put out uh, it is, is much more potent. Um, and, you know, we can get to this uh, later in the discussion, but the FBI, which is the entity that is responsible for countering uh, foreign intelligence activity in the United States, including propaganda, foreign propaganda, um, really has a very limited toolbox when it comes to combating it. Limited in the sense that it doesn't have the intelligence or limited, bec I don't mean smartness, but intelligence capacity, uh, or uh, because it has legal restrictions? Has legal restrictions. So, you know, the FBI and the First Amendment are two great tastes that do not go great together. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, especially since the 70s and the church hearings, the FBI has uh, many restrictions in place from touching anything regarding um, media and, you know, political, any First Amendment activity. Um, when I was in the FBI, I worked, uh, mo many of my cases were what are called perception management uh, cases. These are foreign intelligence services uh, basically disseminating propaganda um, in the United States. They might also be posing as lobbyists. I'm sure that doesn't sound familiar. Uh, <laughs> and uh, trying to influence uh, policy. But, um, you know, I worked on a, a few propaganda cases and they're very difficult. Even in the analog days before social media, um, what intelligence services would do is uh, they would recruit a source, a, a journalist maybe, um, or somebody in an outlet, it might be unwitting, the person may not realize that who they're talking to is a spy, but what they would do is essentially get uh, their article or, or whatever they want to circulate placed. Um, the FBI can't do anything, they can't stop the outlet from publishing it. Um, they typically don't want to go to the journalist and say, by the way, your source is a spy, um, you know, that's. You just don't want to do that. It, I, I did that once. It's very delicate. You really don't, you know, because the media is very obviously You don't want suspicious. to tell us about that in any <laughs> detail. <laughs> um, so what the FBI really has at its disposal is something called the Foreign Agent Registration Act. This is a, a law that was passed in 1938 in order to combat Nazi propaganda. And the idea is that when people are here uh, operating at the direction and control of a foreign government, they should register with the Department of State as, as being foreign agents. And that way, anything that they put out there is the public knows that it is officially coming from you know, a foreign state. And they can then evaluate that appropriately. Um, the Department of Justice just made RT America and Sputnik, which are two Russian outlets, registered last November as foreign agents um, of Russia. So basically, they're designating these outlets as official propaganda outlets. But beyond that, not much they can do. They, even with them, they didn't shut them down completely. Julia Davis, tell us a little bit more about uh, what it is that the Russians are, or who it is that the Russians are targeting very specifically, because I understand that they do know a lot about American society, as you indicated, and have... Uh, uh, the goal, not so much necessarily even of controlling the election in terms of who wins or who loses, but rather uh, to create chaos. The, the Russians are targeting people that are feeling disenfranchised. The, they have been cultivating the audience since, uh, by their own admissions, since um, about 2009, when uh, the idea of um, Russia Today, which later was rebranded as RT, was um, uh, conceived and it was conceived uh, as a potential information weapon. And uh, what they did is um, any topics that were covered in the mainstream, they would want to find an alternative 
point of view that no one else would showcase, or they wanted to um, seize on certain conspiracy theories and amplify them. So they wanted to um, uh, cultivate and grow the audience that would uh, be inclined not to trust the media, not to trust the government, not to trust the process, um, that would be easy to manipulate into thinking that it's pointless to vote, it's uh, pointless to engage in any productive way because everything is rigged, and basically make them feel like the uh, democracy is a sham and uh, undermine us that way. What's the relationship between the Russian media and the military? It's very similar. In fact, um, uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Russia Today, Margarita Simonian, in a Russian-language interview, described RT as an unofficial branch of the Russian Defense Ministry and an information weapon that was to be used in information wars against the West. And it's also interesting that um, the Russians um, often say that they are winning in the information war against the West. And another statement they often make is you can on only win an information war if you are on the offensive. So when you reconcile those two statements together, you could see they're well aware of what they're doing, and they're doing it with a specific intent. So Caroline, as a behavioralist, why is it that people are vulnerable and susceptible uh, to the kind of uh, misinformation and uh, intentionally misleading information that they're getting from, from the Russians? Well, for one thing, it's targeted to different people. So there's not one type of information coming. It's, it's targeted for different populations, different segments of the population. And, you know, we're all um, susceptible to to believing things that sound good, um, to believing things that maybe play into, again, an, a pre-existing belief that we have. Um, and and Russia is very good at identifying these undercurrents, these um, uh, things that maybe even some Americans aren't aware of, but that are going on in American society and really tapping into them. And, um, you know, when we hear something, for example, the... Um, you know, the idea of something being rigged or, um, you know, that that can explain things to us that don't have an answer or can give us an answer that, you know, that we want to hear if, if maybe the real answer isn't appealing to us. With conspiracy theories, um, that's a that's a really, really prominent theme in Russian propaganda is conspiracy theories. And those are appealing, you know, across the the political aisle, left to right, and they're appealing largely for the same reason because they help us make sense out of things that don't necessarily make sense. They help us um, look at a, a world that's confusing and might not have answers, and that you know there might not be answers to some of our questions, or at least not ones that satisfy us. And a conspiracy theory that that allows you to take all of these grand factors and tie them all together in a nice bow, it kind of sounds nice and it, it, it soothes us mentally to be able to tell ourselves that, that there is an answer to these things that we are wondering about and that all of these unknowns, you know, maybe, well, maybe there is, you know, a, a, simple, um, a simple way to answer them. How do they start out with a website or another source of information that's small? and it really doesn't have an audience, and build it into something big. Tell us a little bit about that technology and how it works. So it, sometimes, well, for, for one thing, it's not always successful. Um, there's, there are a lot of trial runs. That um, There was one this spring around, I think it was May. Um, it's called USA Really, and it never really got off the ground. Um, they tried to pitch it to an American audience, and it just didn't. It didn't catch. It just it, it didn't have the um, you know the right storylines. It didn't. It didn't take. But the ones that are successful, typically, um, are geared towards a particular segment of the population. For example, there is one that is uh, geared towards veterans, uh, the U.S. veterans community. 
and um, it appeals to specific issues that are real issues with our veterans. So, you know, again, it's tapping into something that's real um, and it's really segmenting that information towards that population. And then it's the crossover onto social media a lot of times that really allows that website to then thrive because then it allows people to share it with other like-minded people and then you get this you know community of people sharing and eventually it it does become you know sort of organic it's uh, you know a mix of of propaganda of of um you know americans who maybe start contributing to it not knowing what they're contributing too. And um, that's where, you, you know, you get into this sort of confusing the gray zone. How do they, how do they use the uh, way in which Facebook and uh, Google and Twitter and the others um, make information available uh, to people? I saw an interview where you talked about how they, they come on early in the morning uh, and attract that way uh, or, or well, explain explain that. Uh, you're nodding, so I'm, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I do. Uh, <clears throat> so this was this specific example was on on Twitter, um, and Twitter. If you look at activity patterns, so when are people using it most, and when are they most active? You know, you can see peaks and. Um, of activity during the day. And, and if you consider a US time zone, East Coast time zone, because I'm East Coast centric, sorry. Um, but about eight o'clock in the morning, you start to see the activity go up when people are waking up and getting to work and going online and starting to look at articles and share articles and see what, um, especially on Twitter, because Twitter is a very news-centric platform. So there's a lot of news sharing going on. But if you can get to it before that, you know, seven, eight o'clock peak at maybe three o'clock in the morning. And the reason I know this is because I watched it happen um, about two to four in the morning when there's very low activity on Twitter, when not a lot of people are using it. It's easier if you are an actor like Russia to use a combination of um, automated or accounts or bots, as they're more often known, um, and also just a, a, you know trolls and and other ways of uh, artificially amplifying a topic or a, a hashtag. It's easier to do that when there's less activity. So if you think about it, four o'clock in the morning, you know, think about it like a road. Um, you go out there's not that many people on the road at four o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. And there's not that many people on Twitter. And so if you can get something going, it's easier to break through the noise when there's not a lot of noise there in the first place. Then by the time we are waking up at eight o'clock in the morning, the initial automated accounts and any sort of suspicious looking activity is gone. That how you know that that's how they broke through, and once it's broken through, it gets picked up by an organic audience. By you know any people waking up, they see a hashtag that appeals to them. Um, one that comes to mind because I saw this happen multiple times with similar hashtags were um, basically hashtag campaigns. Uh, denigrating the, the U.S. media and the, and the press. And so it would be a specific hashtag, and it would start at 2, 3 in the morning with artificial amplification through bots and or other orchestrated mechanisms. They would break through when in, there was very little noise. And then, you know, again, they're tapping into real things. There really are people in the U.S. who want to join in and, you know, bash CNN or whoever it may be that they're going after that day. And so when people start joining in, then the bots can stop. You know, they've done their job and the, uh, you know, the artificial amplification can stop. That, that is, a, you know, a, a, the goal is achieved. 
regular users have picked it up. So by the time people are waking up at eight o'clock in the morning, it looks like it's completely organic. It looks like it's human driven. And unless you happen to be either awake at two or three in the morning, or you go back and look and you know see this real um, unnatural activity, you would never you would never know that um, you know how it got started, where it came from, and and that it was not organic. Would you like to ask each other the questions? I <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, should I go first. Ask questions. Yeah, sure. Okay, I thought I was here to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'll just to, like I'll I'll dovetail off of what they both just said yeah. and and add something. I mean, I think that it's important to understand that you know these dichotomies that we have here, you know, like you know that we're at war or we're at peace, and th that doesn't exist there. This, there's a very you know, Julia mentioned that they think of information as a weapon. Um, this is warfare. It's it, it, even in peacetime. Uh, you know, we're not actually fighting war, but they are. Uh, they believe that this is, um, you know, an ongoing thing. And I think that what is really difficult for Americans to understand is to be able to get your mind around a threat that's not visible. Um, we've been so conditioned in this country to think of threats as. It has to explode, and there have to be dead people. And um, <clears throat> you know, if that didn't happen, it cannot be that dangerous. Um, and that is really putting us at risk um, because it is—it's just not a threat that's being taken seriously. But Julia, what you're saying is, we—we we know what they want. They say it. They're saying it on the media all the time. Uh, why isn't that a key? Why can't we take advantage of the fact that they're saying that? Why don't we? Uh, hear more from you. <laughs> well, we should be taking advantage of that, and that should be something that um, is not talked about enough in, in the mainstream media today, is uh, what Russia wants, and that's the restoration of the USSR and expansion, and the US is what stands in their way, because we are um, still standing up to them, and our reaction to what they did with the annexation of Crimea and with what they're continuing to do by um, bleeding and attacking Ukraine, um, it's standing in their way. And if we are in chaos and disarray, that would free them up to do whatever they want all over the world. So um, Americans, uh, a lot of time, don't realize the, the threat and the intent that is there. Sometimes Americans will say, well, what does it matter if the Russians are spreading propaganda? Um, CNN is propaganda. And the important distinction is um, that uh, Putin's government seeks to do us harm and, and to destroy our way of life. Uh, and. Um, our mainstream media is certainly not perfect, but they're not seeking to, to destroy us. And uh, it, that's something that is not out there enough. And I think it will be, um, we are the targets of Russian propaganda, but we also are a solution of that problem. And not a social media company and not the government. They can't do as much about this problem as, as um, everyday Americans just getting empowered uh, with that information and sharing it with uh, with other people in their life. That's what what will ultimately um, be the solution. I said I would ask you to ask questions, but I want to ask questions too. Uh, uh, Julia, um, how susceptible are people who, who have bought into uh, or have seen um, misinformation uh, to being told, wait a minute, that's wrong, and here's the real a story, as we in the media believe, at least, uh, we are we are presenting. How susceptible are they to? Can you change people's minds? Um, yes, uh, yes. It's it's difficult. Um, it, it really is. Once um, fact checking is not necessarily a way of changing people's minds. That doesn't mean it's there's not a use for it. Um, but simply telling somebody something that they believe is incorrect is not is not an effective way of, of changing their beliefs or their mind. Um, that's 
you know, we have all of these PolitiFact and, and Snopes and everything, and, and there, is a, there is a role for them, and I don't, I don't mean to discount them, but um, there's been a lot of research on, you know, correcting misperceptions and, you know, correcting misinformation and simply telling somebody the right version of something that they believe uh, that is wrong is not enough to to change their mind. Uh, part of it, part of the reason is because, you know, we are susceptible to believing misinformation because we want to, and you know, because it it hits something in us. So we don't we don't want to believe that it's not true. We don't want to believe that we've been fooled, either. And. Um, you know, a lot of times, one of the other uh, really insidious uh, aspects of Russian propaganda, Russian disinformation, is that a lot of times it's not even aimed at convincing you that a particular version of events is true. It's just aimed at confusing the, you know, the, basically destroying the notion that there is a true version of events and. Um, we see a really clear example of that right now going on in, in Syria, um, where basically Russia is, is very heavily involved in Syria and um, very much trying to just throw out so many versions of events, so many versions of what might happen, so many conspiracy theories that for the average you know, information consumer, it's just overwhelming. You just get tired of trying to sort through all, you know, for example, a, a um, suspected chemical attack might be, you know, presented as a false flag and it might be presented as these people did it and these people did it. And at some point, people just give up and stop trying to figure out, you know, which, which version, uh, if any of these is true and it's you know it's mentally exhausting and that's the point is to get you in that vulnerable state where you are mentally exhausted and where it seems like there is no version of truth so you know sometimes it, it's not you know correcting a misperception but really getting back to the idea that that one truth even exists and you know to <clears throat> With the with the early morning bots and trolls and the different versions, it's important to understand that there are dedicated resources in Russia to do this. Um, they have something called the Internet Research Agency. This is a four-story building that employs what a thousand people or something like that. Um, and it, it, I mean, this is like it's like the office. I mean, you have people who've <laughs> talked about it, and they have all the problems of a, you know they're in their cubicles, they complain about their lunch break, um, but they show up. They work in 12-hour shifts. They have different floors. One floor, you know, they just make memes. Another floor is for the American audience. Another floor is for Russian-speaking audiences in, in, uh, in different countries. Um, and they are just there for 12 hours. They have quotas to come up and, you know, tweet, create content, tweet it out, put it out. Um, and they are, they are on the clock, and they are being paid um, it is technically, I guess, a private company, but the owner of it is tied to uh, the Kremlin um, because everything, you know, it's a power vertical. Everything kind of still goes up to the Kremlin. But that is what we're up against. Um, you know, there. This is uh, the Ministry of Truth. Uh, to take it from, you know, George Orwell, 1984, where they sit there and they come up with this stuff um, and put it out. I think it, I was just reading something about the State Department uh, estimated how much the Kremlin spends on like propaganda. Dollars, and, yeah. yeah, I mean it, it, it's astronomical, um, and you know, just we we don't have a version of that. That well, and Julia just said it's part of the defense uh, operation. Look at how much we spend on defense. If that's what they think yeah. they're doing, then that's justifiable in that context especially when they talk about, look at the results. I mean, you'd be amazed at how many times they have jokingly boast Trump is ours because they're proud of the accomplishment and uh, um, they're bragging about it. And when, uh, when it causes uh, some sort of a disruption, then to them it's money well spent. 
And, uh, you know, also they're not at all feeling guilty about it because all is fair in love and war. And to them, there's no question about it. This is war. What do they say? How do they report President Trump's relationship, if that's the right term, with President Putin? They are enjoying every moment when he appears to be subservient. Um, they repeated, um, I, I think it was um, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, that said that he was, uh, that Trump was licking Putin's boots. They must have repeated it 10 times. Are they, they surprised? They, um, they don't act surprised. They, they realize America is a free country. That's not something that could ever happen there. But uh, they enjoy the humiliations, uh, and uh, they show, show that as, um, um, you know, to their audience, of, well, look at how crazy they are over there. And, and uh, <laughs> they, are, they are relishing every opportunity to point that out, that um, the leader of the most powerful country in the world is subservient to their president, and Americans know it. Back to the uh, campaigns. Uh, you're from Ukraine. You were born in Ukraine, and you've taken a great interest in what happens there. Uh, we have Mr. Manafort, who is very much involved in Ukraine, who's now going to be uh, presumably uh, helpful to the special prosecutor. Um, to what extent <coughs> do you see the uh, legacy, if you will, of campaigns in Ukraine, perhaps run by Mr. Manafort, in the Trump campaign and what we've, we're seeing in politics in the United States? Um, I see the continuation of the same um, dirty line of, of work that they do, um, smearing opponents, calling anything that contradicts them fake, and uh, being completely unscrupulous. I mean, the um, they are not concerned with appearances. They resort to any kind of uh, name calling. Um, they um, try to slaughter entire news agencies as fake if they report something that they dislike. So uh, it's completely consistent uh, from the Eastern Europe to um, the United States. It transferred the same idea. And lock, that lock is. Up. Is that a familiar phrase? Yes, it is. Back from Yulia Tymoshenko in, in Ukraine all the way to the United States. They pick an enemy and they try to demolish them, get them imprisoned, destroyed by whatever means. <laughs> it's, uh, th this is a very disturbing situation. So uh, <laughs> I think we all, uh, that's why we're all here. That's why we have a big crowd. That's why we've gathered you. Uh, 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 together. And I, I, uh, Julia, talk a little bit more, uh, if you will, about how we might, if uh, we were really focused on it, uh, able to do something about this. We understand, apparently, that the uh, administration, actually, I should ask uh, Asha more about this, uh, is the administration doing what it might do? But uh, let me first ask you, uh, 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 Julia, what, what might be, excuse me, I'm sorry, uh, Caroline, what might be done? What, 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 what strategies uh, the United States could take uh, to prevent what's what's happening, and very particularly uh, between now and the election, to prevent uh, what what might uh, be influential in the outcome. We we talked a little bit about this actually while we were uh, getting ready. We all came to the same ag agreement that, um, for one thing, it really does at the end of the day come down to things. In, at, at an individual level, that's not to say that the that the government doesn't have a role in promoting um, those individual level steps and changes. Um, but you know, there's it's not going to be a uh, social media company that solves it for us because if if one social media company cracks down, you know, it, they go to the others or, and a new one opens up. Um, one of the but they're 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 the source of it. They're what being, is being manipulated, are they not? And and their strategies are what the Russians are able to use in order to accomplish their ends. So why can't the social media companies do something about it? Well, if I mean the existing was, for example, if Facebook does well, you see what happens. Facebook does one thing, and and you know an, another avenue opens up, um, or you know if if. Facebook were to totally 
cleanse the problem from, from their platform, um, you would see it grow on, on Twitter or on you know, Instagram or even, um, I mean, you, in 2016, you know, we saw uh, the uh, rallies and, and flash mobs, I mean, on the, on the ground, you know, not even on social media at that point, but actually on, on the ground. And that's not to say social media companies don't have a role. They absolutely have a role in, you know, doing everything that they can. But at the end of the day, even if social media companies were to do everything that they can, which they're not, but if they were to do everything that they can, we would still have a problem. One of the things, though, that they can do that some of them are starting to do, and I wish more would, um, is, is tell us, just expose you to tell us when something is, is propaganda. Tell us, you know, this account. Could that, they do you, that? They could label it? Label it. Basically, the most effective way that I have seen, and, and maybe you guys have um, input on this too, is to deactivate the account so it's no longer, you know, in in use where they can't continue putting out new uh, content. But don't remove the account. Leave the account up there. Sort of preserve it so that people like us, can go look at it and see, you know, look at their activity patterns, look at the content, learn from it, you know, who are they targeting, how are they targeting them, you know, what are the activity patterns, and um, because once you expose people, you know, basically once you expose it as propaganda, you've, you've taken away a lot of the, the bite, you know, once people know that they're looking at propaganda, a lot if, of the if, if they think other people believe that, though, are they really going to be even persuaded by that? If, 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 if people like them buy into whatever it is, even if, the, uh, if Facebook or whoever it is calls it propaganda, uh, is that going to be effective? Are they going to believe it? In a certain segment of the population, no. There, I mean, there's always yeah. going to be a certain segment because of, again... It, but it is, Asha, a way that we could use the First Amendment or work within yeah. the First Amendment so, to deal with this issue. So in counterintelligence, uh, you always have three goals with any kind of foreign intelligence activity. You need to identify it, you monitor it, and then you neutralize it. Um, and different kinds of operations you neutralize in different ways. Um, with propaganda, the way to neutralize it is to make it transparent. Um, this is the goal, this is the point of FARA, you know, it's to basically label something, this is Nazi propaganda, just so you know, it's coming from the Germans, um, so that people can evaluate it. So um, I totally agree with that. Um, another way that something similar could be achieved on social media platforms is that there are platforms right now that actually track bots and trolls and the hashtags that they are trying to push in um, the American, you know, media ecosystem. Um, you know, I think that, you know, news, just like they have stock tickers or sports scores, they could list basically, you know, the trending hashtags from Russia. So, you know, as you're watching news in real time, if you start hearing some, you know, news anchors or, you know, contributors like saying things that are echoing the same talking points that Russia wants you to hear, maybe you will evaluate that in context. You can, might still believe it, but at least you know. Um, you know, the U.S., we, you know, we're, we're not going to, like, launch a counter-propaganda campaign in Russia. We can't. They're a closed society. Um, you know, that's one of the, the imbalances here. Um, it's about fortifying the critical thinking and evaluation skills here. And I think that the other big uh, way that we can protect ourselves is going to what Julia and Caroline are saying, you know, Foreign intelligence agencies don't launch operations unless they already see a vulnerability that they can exploit. And the vulnerability that they have seen in American society is that it's incredibly polarized. Um, social media is simply a vehicle that they can use to you know, uh, take advantage of that polarization, but the polarization is self-created. Um, and so you know, some way of cross-pollinating or of bringing people around shared values that transcend all of these issues and politics 
um, which is kind of what we had in the Cold War. Mm. Um, I t I'm teaching a class this fall on Russian intelligence, information warfare, and social media. And when we talked about active measures under the KGB, this is nothing new, by the way. They've been doing this. Um, I made them watch Ronald Reagan's farewell speech. And, you know, the beacon on the, the shining beacon on a hill, um, which was a, a farewell speech to the American people, but that was also intended for an audience, um, a Soviet, you know, leadership there to say, these are the values that we stand for. Anyone can come here. Um, you know, we stand for democratic values. You know, under Trump, spreading democracy has been taken off the State Department website. Like, that is not now officially what we are about. So we have lost kind of a rallying cry of, of who we are. Um, and finding, you know, we don't, we used to have Schoolhouse Rock, where it's like, okay, guess what? We all can, no matter what, we all believe in checks and balances, um, or no more kings, you know? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've, we don't have, we don't have that anymore, I think, or we're losing it, or don't have a way of bringing people together around those things. Julia, let me ask you, what countries other than the United States, you mentioned Ukraine, of course, and, and Eastern Europe, have the Russians used these kinds of techniques and strategies where they don't have the First Amendment and they don't, we don't, they don't have the, uh, uh, even the kind of, uh, of uh, response available uh, that, that we do here? And, and uh, how, how much has it helped Russia become more powerful worldwide? They're doing it uh, not only in the post-Soviet space, but they're doing it all over Europe. And... Uh, one of the topics that they have been exploiting is the, the fear of migrants. And um, to them, the, this uh, makes Russia seem more powerful because they, they reject uh, migrants and they make people fear uh, that, that uh, mixing weakens Europe. And if you listen to the Russians, you would think that Europe is about to fall apart and, and the United States as well. So. They're basically targeting um, all of the Western world as a whole because the idea of democracy is an inconvenience to uh, Putin's uh, goals. So when they see President Trump uh, advocating in, 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 in a way that suggests that uh, he's not happy with NATO uh, or the European Union, how do they report that? What do they say about it? They say Trump is doing Putin's work for him. Putin doesn't have to lift a finger. Um, they said that what uh, the Soviet Union has been trying to do and Russia has been trying to do is to uh, put a wedge in the transatlantic unity and to shatter NATO, and now Trump is doing all the work. So, Caroline, is that enough to get people to not vote for President Trump? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, <laughs> No, it's not. Um, and again, you know, a lot of this, although it is geared towards elections, and, and a lot of us sort of became familiar with this during the election season, you know, again, the primary target of this really is our, our government, our way of life, our, our democracy, our our institutions, um, you know, if if Trump were out of office tomorrow and another Putin-friendly candidate arose, you know, that would be their, you know, their new target. And um, that's one of the things, you know, I think going forward that that will be important for all of us is is to recognize, you know, this this isn't going to go away when when Trump goes away. Um, you know, that, that the Trump-specific uh, effect will go away, but that, you know, there are other candidates that Russia likes in the, in the U.S., um, and there will be new ones in, in the future. Do, do, do the, excuse me for interrupting, but do the Russians care specifically about any candidates that are running in the uh, elections coming up in this coming November? Um, they were. They talk a lot about the midterms, and um, all they care about is uh, that the Democrats don't win. They would prefer it that Democrats don't win because they they see that as the the weakening of of their position. 
but if uh, Democrats win and try to impeach Trump, uh, the Russians are not too concerned about that because they can turn that too to their advantage. How do they do it? Uh, they just see that as a potential for stirring up uh, civil unrest, and they're hoping it will be armed unrest. And uh, they've been doing that since uh, before the elections when they were trying to set up rallies both pro-Trump and anti-Trump in the same place and time. They're hoping people will clash. And um, that's, that's why the, the solution, like the, uh, the ladies pointed out, is absolutely in finding our common ground as Americans and trying to see that it's not really about Trump. It's about uh, democracy versus these uh, forces that are working to undermine us. Asha, you wanted to add Yeah, I actually, I have a question for Caroline, but just to um, preface, preface it, um, I agree that this is not just, um, you know, we, we think only about the elections or Trump, and this is much longer term. Mm -hmm. And this is about, you know, it's, it's not just creating chaos, it's about also distrust, um, you know, not trusting law enforcement anymore, that's a big goal. Like once you can get people to not trust courts or your law enforcement, I mean, you know, that's, that's big, the media. Um, and, you know, that kind of deterioration and erosion of faith. I mean, our democracy is kind of like the dollar, our dollar bill. You know, you kind of have to believe that it works and everybody kind of just gets in and, and does it. So my question, Caroline, is, you know, I, my sense is that that kind of deterioration, um, distrust, cynicism, all of that is very hard to undo. Like that becomes a long-term kind of self-perpetuating thing. Is that, would you, it, what would you say about that? Yes, it's, it's very hard to undo. It's, um, you know, once, once you lose trust in something, it's very hard to, to gain it back, especially, um, you know, something as, as large as, uh, you know, an institution when it's something that isn't necessarily tangible, that's hard to, you know, measure, hard to see the short term. Um, and, you know, one of the really toxic um, storylines or narratives that, you know, keeps popping back up are these basically conspiracy theories and, and things about voting and, and, you know, being rigged and, you know, was such and such a, a rigged vote. And, you know, there are certainly, we, there are still plenty of questions that, you know, we need, we being our, our agencies, uh, Homeland Security, need to be looking into. But, um, you know, when, when we tell people that, for example, a um, election was rigged and nobody's doing anything about it or sort of venture into that conspiratorial and nobody's doing anything about it. We really risk basically telling people, you know, right. your vote didn't... Put on sweatpants and just yeah. give up. Right, your vote didn't count, nobody's yeah. doing anything about it. And if nobody's doing anything about it, then why would your vote count? So, Julia, are we then doing the work that the Russians want to see done? If we fall into that hopeless state of mind, then we would be, but we have to realize that we are the ones we've been waiting for, so no one will do it for us. We, we have to be proactive, and if uh, something you're reading is making you feel hateful towards um, any particular group or any particular person, if it makes you feel uh, hopeless, if it makes you feel hateful, if it... If it uh, uh, arouses uh, certain emotions in you, double-check the source. Think about the motivation of that story that you have read that, that got you so riled up. It may have been put there with that particular purpose. So we're going to go to the audience for questions, but uh, very quickly, you can just give me a one-word answer. What do you think is the answer to the question, can American democracy survive uh, this onslaught of Russian misinformation. Can it? Yes, absolutely it can. Yeah? Yes. Yeah? Think so? It will. Okay. <laughs> Hi, uh, Jeff Carr from Los Angeles. Just uh, really enjoyed your talk tonight and wanted to know, in addition to soap, Snopes and PolitiFact, is there a good uh, website that says, you know, if you're suspicious about something, go there. 
and you'll get the answer that it may have had a bot working behind it be a part of the Russian effort. One good website there, um, you can't put the input in, but you can see what the output is in terms of it monitors. Um, believe it's just Twitter at this point, um, but it, it monitors basically a um, network of accounts linked to Russian influence operations. So it's Russian uh, propaganda websites, it's uh, individual accounts, uh, bots, trolls, it's about 600 accounts and they monitor um, you know, what they're talking about. And so it'll give you the hashtags, the topics, the top URLs, and that's um, securing democracies. It's called the Hamilton 68. Hamilton 68. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really good resource just to kind of see what, it's a, literally a dashboard and just kind of to see what's out there. It tells you some of the topics aren't necessarily, you know, sometimes it's like Russia is a topic. So that's not going to, be too informative, but sometimes you'll get very informative topics, and um, I go to, I, I mean, I keep the tab open, I go to it probably six times a and day. And it's Hamilton 68. Yes. And that's mm. what I had in mind when I was thinking of, like, a ticker kind of thing, because that, that, be that site, you know, is compiling this information, but what people do need is something in real time that helps them evaluate the information that they're consuming. And her Twitter feed. And her Twitter name, which is... Um, <laughs> Julia Davis News. Um, Julia, you had said earlier that the Russians believe that uh, the only way to play this game is to be on offense. And I'm old enough to have lived through the Cold War. And we played offense in different ways. We played it with miss, you know, missiles that we didn't use because of mutual assured destruction. But we also played it with STEM programs, with the space program, with other types of science-driven programs. Now we're in a social science kind of war, right? Um, and earlier, Asha, you'd said that, the, uh, uh, that to foster critical thinking in that regard. Um, but my question actually has to do with Congress. Because during the Cold War, they saw the Russians, the Soviet Union, as an existential threat to democracy. And so what role does Congress need to play in order for individuals to understand that we're in an existential threatened situation? should actually um, enact the will of the people and enforce the sanctions that we um, keep writing but don't seem to be enforcing or um, living up to. And uh, the Russians know this as well, and they, they often talk about it. In fact, they talked about um, uh, when the sanctions were first um, announce, they said, don't worry about it. Trump will impede their implementation. He will sabotage it. They will never come to be. They will never affect you. And uh, to us, the ones that have been enacted are affecting them, even though they pretended to be laughing at that initially. So the best thing the Congress could do is uh, stop with uh, the pilgrimage trips to the Kremlin <laughs> and the, the proclamations of undeserved uh, love and friendship when the Russians are openly hostile to us and uh, enforce the sanctions and make them uh, realize that we are serious about it and that it's not just a lip service like they believe it to be and let them see that, that uh, no, Trump can't shield you from this only change in your behavior can. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, I kind of imagine Putin as like Lex Luthor you know, and he's like, how can I, you know, get world domination? And, um, I mean, but every time we don't push back in a very strong way, it is effectively giving the green light for it to continue. And I think that um, where it hurts him and his friends, his oligarch friends, is financially. Um, those are the, you know, we if we pull their purse strings, then that hits them where it hurts. That and, you know, for, for a government response, that's really where they can be effective. Arcadia, I want to thank you for talking about such a very important thing. I owe my very existence to the fact that my dad was able to leave Slovakia years ago. And um, my cousin is a politician in Slovakia who's trying to fight all of this uh, trouble from Putin and things like that. As a teacher, we work with 
the children. They are our future. Um, as adults, we encountered all of this um, social media stuff, kind of unprepared for it, it because we've been inventing it as we go along. What can we do as teachers to help make the future uh, internet users more discerning consumers of this information that they will be using as they grow up? And that's a really good question. I, I, I love to think that, that people are thinking of that. Um, and one thing to go back to is that, um, that idea of transparency and sort of shedding a light on you know what right now is is still sort of shrouded in in darkness and um, showing kids using these things as lessons and they're actually believe it's uh, PBS um, I can't remember now what it's called but one I believe it's PBS or NPR has an actual it's a whole uh, series it's like a mini curriculum that you can show kids and it, it specializes, you know, not just in social media, but it's in this particular area of like propaganda and, um, you know, sort of uh, digital deception and teaching them, you know, how to recognize it. There was actually, and there was something in New York Times the other week, I believe it's the Times, where you could look at two things side by side and it was like, which is the you know, Russian propaganda and which is, which is not. And, um, you know, things like that, I think at a younger age where you're, where you're just sort of introducing it. And then, you know, as, as they get older, I think teaching some of the more, um, you know, things we might normally think of as, as research and journalism type skills, you know, evaluating your source. Um, I think it's Clint Watts who always says, you know, if you go to a news website, and it doesn't have a geographic location on there. You know, that should be sort of an instant red, you know, why, why is this a news website that I don't know where they are? And, um, you know, things like, like that, some of the basic things that we forget about. Um, I think that'd be a, a good place to start. I have a question that touches up on our First Amendment. And um, how much, if any, of our First Amendment rights do you think we need to give up in order to legitimize the press? Um, I mean, I think that that should be the one thing we never compromise on, right? Because otherwise, then, then we lose. <laughs> I mean, we have to find a way to make, to uh, maintain our highest principles, which are a free and open society and a free press, and. Um, bring, as this teacher mentioned, our skills up to handling um, the challenges that we face in this open society given the technology we have. Um, you know, I think that we, we do need to take steps like the government did with RT and Sputnik. If they're propaganda, label them propaganda. But I, I don't think that um, the answer is censorship. Um, I think that, you know, I do think that social media plays a unique role here because they are not like traditional news outlets. And so we have this new thing that is a platform that purports to be completely neutral. And what we've discovered in the wake of 2016 is that they, these, they're not, they can't continue to pretend to be neutral because when they do, they will, you know, they, bad actors take advantage of them. Um, so, you know, unlike traditional media that would have to put their reputations on the line, um, reporters put themselves on the line, um, we need to also find a way for social media to take some responsibility for the huge role that they are playing in the way that people get information. And I'm not really sure what that is. I think we all agree that something has to be done, um, but I don't think, you know, outright censorship, you know, or shutting people down, publications down is the... Uh, legitimate places uh, is the answer. Um, hi, Karina. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, my question has to do with, um, there's a historical evidence of the US meddling in foreign elections as well, just in general. Um, so isn't it logical that for the central intelligence to expect that another foreign country would meddle in a US election? And my question is, how prepared or how shocking was this to the central intelligence agency? 
I mean, I think they were taken by surprise, to be honest. I mean, my understanding is that they started to see the inklings of this, you know, maybe in 2015. Um, and then definitely going into the election. Again, when you're dealing with disinformation, that aspect of it, it's just very hard to do. Um, what they could have done is made the American public aware of it much um, earlier. Uh, I, I just think, I mean, look, our intelligence agencies, though, you know, I like, you, we lived off the mythology that people think they're all powerful. I mean, they are bureaucracies also. Um, and their leadership, you know, this is a very generational thing as well. Um, technology is developing faster than, you know, people uh, at some levels of government can even understand it. I don't know if any of you watched the first uh, hearings with, you know, the Facebook. Um, <laughs> you know, so, um, and I also think that the the brazenness with which Russia interfered on so many fronts, not just disinformation, hacking, potentially, you know, funneling illegal campaign contributions, um, political influence with like the spy in the NRA or whatever. Um, I didn't, I think that they thought that maybe even Putin would not push the envelope that far, but we know that he did. The question was, what about America's past history in dealing with elections in other countries, Chile? Uh, Iran, uh, weren't we doing the same thing? Yeah, I thought she was saying, wouldn't we expect uh, that I to happen here, thought, so why weren't we more prepared? In other words, mm -hmm. we've done this before, we understand that this is a part of the game, why were we not mm -hmm. more prepared? Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think that they conceived I, that they would yeah. happen in this way. And I view a difference in terms of what we have done in other countries in terms of when, when we have... Um, you know, interfered or, um, you know, but we have, <laughs> I, th I think we have done so, at least in, in modern history, uh, with the intent of promoting uh, democracy, with the intent of... Um, well, I mean, I I mean that we was have, the stated, like, it was, to sp it was to prevent the spread of communism. So I, with well, Pinochet... With Allende, um, the coup in Allende, which was, you know, helped along by the CIA. I mean, look, you can debate the, the moral righteousness of that or not, but there was an ideology that was behind it, and that was a part of an ideological conflict that we had with the Soviet Union. Um, to do it simply for the sake of destabilizing a society just to watch it implode for no, you know... I, I, I guess I, I look at a difference between a... Um, you know, a targeting of a civilian uh, individual voter. You know, we, we were gone after as individuals, not as, as, as a government. I think this could be another great program. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My name is Jonathan Boxer. Um, assuming you were president for a week or a year, <laughs> and, and short of sending a cruise missile into that IR, ISR building that you talked about, what offensive actions can we, along with our ally, allies, take to make Russia, or Putin, feel so much pain that he would stop it? I mean, for example, why, why is Germany importing lots of natural gas from Russia? Why is, why is Amsterdam the center of Russian oil trade? Why is there all these engagements with Russia when they're acting in a way that is really anti-social and anti-democratic? Well, they, they realize the power of dirty money, and unfortunately, um, Quite a few governments and, and companies have been willing to overlook what Russia is doing for the sake of the almighty dollar, and it, it needs to stop. They need to, to get serious about it. And uh, there again, if we enforced all the sanctions that we have in place, it would start making difference. If we hit uh, Putin and his oligarchs and, and their dirty connections all over the world, that would make the difference as well. So we're not doing to the full um, capacity what we could be doing. And um, uh, we have to um, make our voices heard to, to the people in positions of power and to the power players in the, the oil business or wherever that is, uh, so that it would cost them more to uh, be in business with, 
with Russia than it would be to uh, just continue their double dealings while we are at war with them, whether it's um, an information war or otherwise, we are in serious peril and we shouldn't be enriching Putin and his cronies in the process. Can I add something here also? I mean, this is less, I think, um, has less impactful, like, generally, but I do think, for example, the Internet Research Agency was one of the entities that was indicted by Robert Mueller, um, along with 13, two other companies and 13 individuals in its disinformation campaign. Um, we indicted 12 GRU officers. Uh, there's now, like, Interpol arrest warrants for them so they can't travel anywhere. Um, so, you know, we can use the, uh, you know, Britain, I think, has already also put the two... Uh, assassins who are, you know, on a sightseeing tour, uh, <laughs> um, put them on the Interpol list. So, so, you know, there are also kind of the criminal means if, if governments are ready to dedicate the resources to tracking down um, the spies, ex, uh, uh, expelling them, because many of them are there under diplomatic cover, so you can completely disrupt their uh, spy networks. Of course, they retaliate with us, but um, so there are some other ways also that you can take symbolic moves that have less impact but are more visible. I told you these guys were going to be great. <laughs> no kidding. Before we close, I'd like to thank our co-presenter tonight, the Japanese American National Museum, and also thank all of you for joining us tonight. Great crowd, and the party's not over. Come grab a, grab a drink with us in the lobby and continue the conversation with our excellent panelists. And finally, uh, well, speaking of them, a big round of applause for them. Thank you so much. Yeah.